Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. Entrepreneurs play a vital role in our economies and societies. They launch new ideas, they create jobs, they promote economic development. And now more than ever, they also contribute to social change, helping to foster sustainable growth and social inclusion. In many ways, entrepreneurship itself is also becoming more inclusive, with technology and online marketplaces making it easier to start a business. But is entrepreneurship truly open to everyone? And does it really function as a social elevator? I'm Kate Lancaster. To discuss these issues and more, I'm speaking today with John Hope Bryant, an American entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist. He's the founder of Operation Hope and a champion for financial inclusion, economic empowerment, and financial dignity. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And for the purpose of this conversation on entrepreneurship, it should be noted that I founded 40 organizations, uh, most of which under my philanthropy, Operation Hope. But also there's Brian Group Ventures, which also controls the largest for-profit minority-controlled owner of single-family rental real estate in America. It's called the Promise Homes Company, which I think is a is an example of the social elevator and the wealth creator from nothing that you that you spoke of, as well as Operation Hope as the educator for the masses in the free enterprise system. As an entrepreneur, how did you get there? Who inspired you? Who set you on this path? I think it was three pieces. And everything I'm saying, by the way, can be tracked back to how our country operates, by the way. My mother told me she loved me every day of my life. So I never had a self-esteem problem. So is your country, as a policy and a practice, encouraging people, inspiring people, educating people, basically telling them that they can do anything. Um, My dad owned his own business, so I modeled what I saw as a country. Is your country uh, has a a sense that business is a force for good, that free enterprise and entrepreneurship is a force for good, that you can start something small and build something big, and that the government's going to be sort of your partner as you grow and make it larger? Or is the, the government see business as the antithesis? as an enemy of the state. And then when I was nine years old, I was taught financial literacy in a home economics class, which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore, by a volunteer banker who came in the classroom to teach it because of the Community Reinvestment Act law in the U.S. that required bankers to and banks to give back. Does your country have a policy for banks that benefit from social good? Uh, and our quasi-public institutions uh, to give back into underserved neighborhoods and to do things like teaching financial literacy. Does your school system teach financial literacy K through college, kindergarten through college? The answer is probably not, by the way. Um, this banker came to my classroom and taught financial literacy, and I raised my hand the second day he was in the classroom, and I felt comfortable asking him a blunt question. This guy was white in a black neighborhood wearing a really beautiful suit, he was like a Martian in my neighborhood. And I said, sir, what do you do for a living? And how'd you get rich legally? And I was serious. And he said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, I don't know what an entrepreneur is. It's a French word, by the way. I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you're financing them and it's legal, that's what I'm going to be. And that's literally why I'm sitting here today. Everything's a culture. Like culture is not the most important thing in government or the most important thing in business or the most important thing uh, in your family. It's the only thing. Everything has a culture. Like it's like you got to consider yourself as a sports team and everybody has to have the same playbook. 
So that playbook for entrepreneurship is then it's shaped by all these factors you described. It's the culture of your family, which every family is different, too. You're, yeah. you're different than your neighbors, different than the family two towns over. So the culture of your family, the culture of your school, the culture of your community, the culture of your country, as you say. So that's, that's, that's fascinating that it's all come together. But when it doesn't work, and you've talked a lot about this in your work, that there in many places there is a real lack of financial literacy and that this is a big factor in poverty being transmitted across generations. Generational poverty. Yeah, across generational poverty in so many different kinds of underserved or underprivileged communities. How are you doing work to change this? Tell us about Operation Hope and what you're doing to improve access to economic opportunities and to build financial know-how. So let me, first of all, tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not going to be able to change the world by myself, and nor am I naive to think I can do that. But I can inspire change. Mm -hmm. You can do big things with a small platform if you have the right idea and you know how to leverage it. Uh, Pivoting to Operation Hope, which has 150 Starbucks-like operations on the ground. We call ourselves a Starbucks of financial literacy. So what do you mean by Starbucks-like? Meaning that it's accessible at the ground level, at the retail level, for you don't have to go to an office tower, you don't need to go to a government building, it's not one every, you know, 5,000 miles or something. We, it's 150 locations that serve 2,000 cities in their proximity that are places where, where you shop, flock, and stop. So they're inside of bank branches. Uh, they're inside of government offices. They're inside of houses of faith. They're increasingly inside of employers. We just cut a deal with UPS, United Parcel Service. So we're inside of their global headquarters. We cut a deal. That's called Hope Inside the Workplace. We cut a deal with Delta Airlines. We're inside of their headquarters. Or their so, call so what centers. are you doing inside the workplace? Financial well-being services, financial coaching, uh, the new stress the is financial. people that work there. Mm-hmm. Because the workers have too much month at the end of their money. Because these middle-class workers, like middle-class workers here in France, are one paycheck away from poverty. You know, the riots that were here in France six months ago, those weren't poor people anymore. The riots 10 years ago were poor people. These are working middle-class people who are fed up with feeling invisible. So uh, this problem is global. So is, the, so is the answer. If I have one frustration is I'm not moving fast enough, but we will have a thousand Hope Inside locations uh, in uh, America committed by the end of next year and operational by 2025. We've got to get them all staged into the workplace and the community. But with a thousand locations across America, uh, we can have systemic transformational change and we have outcomes. So it's not just good intentions. We coach with the outcome of becoming an entrepreneur, like the guy who made the suit that I'm wearing today, Drobe Clothing, young entrepreneur with a dream who's now doing a million dollars plus a year in revenue. Tell me, tell me his story, for example. Tell me a story of someone who walks into one of your centers and where they can go from there. So I'll tell you two stories which Great. are uh, relevant. And I'll, actually, two stories and one interesting fact. Let me tell you the fact first. In America, we use credit scores. At a 700 credit score is sort of uh, the, the top of the mark, if you will. Most neighborhoods that you and I are concerned with, though, let's call it the suburbs of France as a visual here, are 500 credit score neighborhoods. 300 to 500 credit score. And what we found is that's where all of the drugs are. That's where all the crime is, the homicides, the lack of employment, the lack of GDP, the lack of small business and entrepreneurship creation. That's where the depression is. So if everybody in your neighborhood is financially illiterate, it shouldn't surprise you that there's a check casher and a payday loan lender and a rent on store and a title lender and a liquor store all preying on a, you know, 50 square block area that's concentrated with people who are really nice people, 
but they never got the memo on money, and they're just they're prime targets to be preyed upon. Now, those people will feel we're going to feel hopeless, depressed, stressed out. They're going to feel invisible. They probably aren't going to be starting legitimate businesses. And our goal is to move credit scores 100 points. That's our goal in, in every neighborhood. So it's not about whether it's a black neighborhood or a brown neighborhood or a white neighborhood or is what political party they're in. Or no, 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 no. It's a number. And it's a math number. And by the way, you as an individual control it, which means that the power is back inside of you. That's what makes it so powerful. So two examples of that. Lady walks in um, who is trying to become a homeowner to a bank. Uh, the bank will turn her down. She has a horrible, we we'll call it credit score, but really a credit acceptance rate. The banker won't tell her why for fear of being sued. Mm. They'll just say, no, we're sitting 10 feet from the banker. We don't work from the bank. My employees work for me. And we're like, can we talk to Mrs. Jones? Sure. Mrs. Jones, can I look at your credit report? Sure. What, what's that? I don't know what that is. Fantastic. That's called an error. Okay. <laughs> and can we challenge that error for you? Now, in the U.S., what happens with these credit bureaus is if you can challenge the error within 30 days, the credit bureau must respond. And if they cannot confirm by law that it is yours, they must remove it, which pops your credit score 40 points. Okay. So if you had a 580 credit score and now you have a 620 credit score, what happens to your self-esteem? See, your confidence, your trust in the system, your belief in yourself. So we do that basically uh, in different ways to get the credit score up, which gets the confidence up, which gets the self-esteem up, which gets your education up, your belief in yourself up. All of a sudden, now you're believing you can do things you can't do, and you literally can do things you can't do because now we can get you approved for that prime loan to become a homeowner that you were denied before, and then all the lights come on. The business example of that is a guy who made this suit. Uh, Ryan Taylor started a company called Drogue Clothing. But he originally thought he was going to become a uh, fashion designer in Manhattan. I told Ryan Taylor, who was African-American, you're not getting hired. And um, I said, but you're not going to be hired by a fashion designer. Not, it's not a racism. It's not, it's not discrimination per se. They don't know you. There's no relationship capital. Hmm. They're going to hire as an intern their sister's brother's son, who's probably not that smart, but he's part of the family. And he's, he knows everybody, and he's been bugging the, the boss for a job. Okay, come on over here. Yeah, yeah, sit down over here. You know, don't screw up. You know, two months, two years later, that's the person who gets the job. I was in a, a, doing a TV interview two weeks ago at CNN, and I asked a producer, a young Caucasian girl and raised in a beautiful middle-class family, how did you get this job? I was an intern. How would you get the internship? Well, my, brother, my father knew the producer. Okay, so you did a good job of the internship, and then what happened? Well, then somebody said, you know, somebody went on to another position. I got an assistant, it's whatever, an assistant producer job, and then somebody else got promoted, and then she became producer. So it wasn't some elegant answer. It was just relate. She was in the right place in the she right had time. The opportunity. She had the opportunity. So what we we did with this guy Ryan Taylor was we created the opportunity for him. All right, you can't get a job, create one. So you can't go work for the clothing designer. Let's become the clothing designer. The short answer is we gave him a small business class, got his credit score up, got him approved for a loan for $35,000. He's now doing $1.6 million a year in revenue. This is his 10th year in business, six full-time employees, raising his children, paying his taxes. What if uh, the suburbs of France had a guy like Ryan Taylor every block? Hmm. You know, what if... What if uh, uh, Jordan in the Middle East or, you know, Iraq or Iran. You know, what do these places had entrepreneurs every block that represented a story like that? You, I guarantee you crime would go down and terrorism would go down and hope would go up and stability would, would begin to prevail. This ain't rocket science. Everybody wants aspirational success. 
I want to come back to what you said about internships, because saying create the job you want, and some people get their jobs through contacts, through internships, through having the opportunity kind of handed to them, really, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. How how can we how can we address that opportunity it's gap a great that question. other people have? It's a, it's a great question. It's, and and it's, does business have a role to play in that, it, is my it, other it, question. It is the perfect question at OECD, business and public policy. So if, if, if I was in front of all your ministers uh, at OECD and I was going to address all of the ministers uh, for all of your OECD countries, I'd tell them to do four things. Actually, let me just be bold and say five things. One, I would, I would have financial literacy for every kid, K through college. Two, uh, I would make sure that every kid in 10th grade got a computer class because 40% of all jobs in 20 years are going to go poof because of computerization and digitization computers and robotics and AI. Three, I would uh, have the governments create a massive tax benefit for the wealthy and corporations for venture capital in underserved neighborhoods. So you want to spike capital availability in underserved neighborhoods to find the little John Hope Bryans running around to make sure they don't become drug dealers <laughs> and they do become, they start becoming hope dealers. All right. Um, so I give massive capital access. The fifth thing I do would be to create a massive tax scheme for those who create apprenticeships. Hmm. So if you have a job with a dead end skill, uh, let's retrain you and get you in an, an apprentice situation where you have a, now you're being retrained for those skills for the future of job. The apprenticeships for anyone, not just young people. Correct. The apprenticeships, are, the, young, the internships were for young people. The apprenticeships are for people, frankly, in your, in my uh, age range, uh, who are just too young to retire and or can't afford to retire and need to reset their life. I'd ask, a, I'd add a, add a bonus policy to that, which is on the front end, I'd give everybody an electronic bank account at birth. Mm. That's it. That would fundamentally change the landscape of most countries. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and to share this this vision, not just of what you do with Operation Hope, but you've just solved the future of work for us. So thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud.com slash OECD.